This morning we're continuing our look at the various things that the Lord taught us through David's life as we look at a variety of passages throughout the Old Testament. And today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And the question we're going to be wrestling with is the question, are you stuck in the embrace of foolishness? And that's certainly something that I think all of us really could testify to the fact that, that, we've, that we've all, in one way or another, embraced foolishness, either at a season or in a moment, or at one point, maybe that was what characterized our entire life. And for many people, just getting stuck in that embrace of foolishness is something that characterizes the majority of their years. And so we're going to be wrestling with this and taking a look at an example here from Scripture of an event that, uh, that maybe on the surface wouldn't immediately seem to answer that question, but I think the more we dig deep into it, it certainly does. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and I'm going to begin by reading the first 13 verses, and then we're going to pick up some other sections of this chapter as we work our way through it. 1 Samuel 25, starting with verse 1, it says this. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the narratives that are included throughout the course of the Old Testament that help illustrate deeper level spiritual truths, but do so in a way that grips our emotions and grips our attention and helps us to understand things through the lives and through the experiences of other people. Lord, we're grateful that when we look through the Old Testament Scriptures, we see a variety of things. We see circumstances that were foreordained. We see 
people who bear names that it's very obvious that their name was very intentional as far as your plan is concerned, and, and this passage being one of those passages that illustrates that. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word, that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd prepare our hearts right now to grow, you'd help us to put all other concerns aside for just a little bit while we focus on the teaching of your word and seek your presence in our lives and ask you to intervene in our minds and in our hearts so that we would ultimately reflect the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be able to look at it together during this time. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, would, this will not surprise you, but lately I have been paying a lot of attention to sports coverage, uh, particularly coverage of the Philadelphia Eagles, the team that I've been cheering on before I could even read or write. Um, and in the midst of the stories and in the midst of the commentary that I have been watching at an abnormal pace over the course of the past week, and I know many of you have been as well, so I know I'm very, in very safe company as I confess this, but I came across some comments the other day, and I'd be curious to know if anyone else happened to come across these comments as well. But it was actually some comments about our quarterback. Now, here's the thing. I realize some of you grew up in other parts of the country, but you're here now, okay? <laughs> our quarterback, Jalen Hurts. Um, and these comments about Jalen Hurts were actually shared by former Eagles quarterbacks, Donovan McNabb, and Michael Vick. And, you know, if you've been paying attention to Jalen Hurts and his career, right now he's in the early stretch of his professional football career, and if you've heard any interviews with him, heard him talk or do anything, you've, you've probably noticed that he's developed a reputation for remaining calm and keeping himself under control. In general, that's how people look at him. That's the kind of personality he uh, seems to have and the kind of demeanor he displays. And his demeanor has caught the attention of sports media. It's also caught the attention of his predecessors. And so they're all noticing that. And when asked about Jalen Hurts, this is what Donovan McNabb and Michael Vick both said. They both agreed with this statement. They said that basically if they could go back to their early years as professional athletes, they wished that they carried themselves then like they see Jalen Hurts doing right now during the early part of his professional career. Now, I thought that was high praise from these men. I thought that was a, a wonderful compliment. It was certainly something that I thought was even insightful about how people tend to look at their lives when we look at our lives in the rearview mirror, when you look at some of the, the years that have come by and you look at some of the seasons of your life. And, and I would suspect that most of us might be willing to say something similar about our own lives when we look back at some of our early seasons. When you think back to the early season of your adult life, when you think back to your, your teenage years, when you think back maybe even earlier than that, I know I certainly feel the same way about my life. When I, with some lingering embarrassment, I will confess to you that I often think about some of my earlier days when I made some poor choices or maybe spoke to people in a careless manner that I wish I could take back. I've often admitted to you that some of my biggest regrets in life are words that I allowed to come out of my mouth that I wish that I could dial back or take back or, or even just reframe or re-say. But obviously, you can't go back. You can't do those things. And, um, and it's fair to say, and I know I'm not alone in saying this, but it's fair to say that there were seasons of life when I have to confess that I willingly embraced foolishness without even realizing that I was doing so. And maybe you feel the same way about seasons of your life that have come and gone as well. Then you look at a portion of Scripture like we just read from 1 Samuel chapter 25. 
And if you look at some of the details here, now we're going to look at more portions of this chapter as we go along in our time together today, but in 1 Samuel chapter 25, you have a, a picture being painted of foolishness. You have a picture being painted of actually what it's like to be caught in the embrace of foolishness. And in fact, this portion of Scripture shows us the effects of foolishness, not only on the individual person who embraces it, but also on those who live in close proximity to it, because it has more than just you know, an individual effect. It actually has an effect on anyone that gets anywhere near it. And this portion of Scripture starts off by telling us very briefly, it just gives us a very brief comment about this, but I don't want to overlook it. We're told that, that Samuel, so he was the, the last judge and the first prophet of the nation of Israel, we're told that he died. And now a new era, a new season is about to be inaugurated in Israel's history, and we're going to watch as this plays out in coming chapters. But we're told that after the death of Samuel, David and his men decided to do some traveling. And this was frequent for them. These men, the hundreds of men, 600 men that traveled with David, they would go place to place. They didn't typically remain very stationary. And the Scripture tells us that they ventured into the wilderness of Paran, and while they were there, their paths crossed with those who were, carrying, uh, who were caring for the sheep of a man named Nabal. And the Scripture reveals to us that Nabal was someone who was very wealthy in that generation. He was a very wealthy man. That was his reputation. When people thought of Nabal, they thought of him as a, as a, a very wealthy uh, individual who did a lot of business. And it happened to be that at this particular point, he was doing business in Carmel. And during that generation, you know, in our generation, we would probably measure wealth, obviously, in, in financial wealth. You would say, all right, if somebody's wealthy, they probably have a lot of money. But there are other ways that we measure wealth in our day and age. You might say if somebody owns a lot of real estate or if they own a business or if they have a variety of assets. You know, sometimes I see, you know, different people have these massive car collections of classic cars and other people have collections of other things, precious metals, various ways that you could measure wealth. But during this particular generation, one of the primary ways that a person's wealth was measured was by their livestock, by the animals that they happened to own. And so to illustrate just how wealthy Nabal happened to be, the scripture tells us about the thousands of sheep and goats that he happened to own. That was an, a, a demonstration, that was an illustration of wealth for that era. And those who tended his sheep, the scripture also is going to go on to explain to us that those who tended those sheep for a particular season of time were actually protected by David and his men. Now, we haven't gotten into the details yet. I'm jumping ahead a little bit in saying that, but you'll see that in just a few moments. And while, the, while you know, they were tending the sheep in that, er, in that area, David and his men were protecting them. Scripture reveals to us that David and his men made sure that no harm came to Nabal's belongings. It's in, in, in a way, you know, you could look at it and say they, they were almost acting like an insurance policy for a season for Nabal's possessions, for his belongings, for his wealth. They protected his wealth like a great wall of defense. They just, and by the way, everything's going to be in football terms from here on out. All right? So just so we know, and we're on the same page with that. Um, but having been served in this way, you know, as you think of Nabal, obviously you're, you're going to see that Nabal was somebody who made a big deal in his own mind about the wealth that he had. He certainly liked to be noticed for it. He certainly liked to flaunt it. And you would think that having been served in this way by David and his men, you would assume that Nabal would be grateful for this blessing and grateful for this protection that he had received. But I actually get the impression that Nabal was a very short-sighted man 
who did not express gratefulness for his blessings very often. Do you ever encounter somebody like that? Somebody that you can identify some very distinct blessings in their life, and you look at that and you think, you know, are they grateful for it, or do they just assume that this is just the way that it is? Do they just assume that that's how it is for everybody? Do they just, you know, take for granted everything that they've been blessed with? In fact, the name Nabal, when you look at its meaning, it actually means foolish. His name meant foolish. And we're shown, I think, a very startling example of how he managed to live up, or you could even say how he lived down, to that particular name. And after being served by David and his men, Nabal rejected his opportunity to return the favor. So he's given a very distinct, clear opportunity to return the favor. I mean, his wealth was now protected. This wealth that he seemed to wrap his whole sense of identity around was being protected by David and his men for a period of time. And they, they come to him on a feast day as, the, as the, the sheep are being sheared, and this was a very big deal in this agricultural society. And, uh, and they said, basically, you know, they, they wondered if he would share some food with them. That's essentially what they asked. It's not a very unreasonable request. But after being served by David and his men, you have Nabal rejecting, returning any sort of favor. We're told that David sent 10 men. And he says, listen, go in my name, and I want you to have this discussion with Nabal and just talk to him. And, and keep in mind, you know, there's like 600 guys here that are traveling. Obviously, they're getting hungry all the time. Any sort of kindness that could be shown to them would be greatly appreciated, particu particularly as they're going place to place and trying to do good as they travel. They're trying to take care of different things. They're trying to actually operate in some respects with a servant's heart. And so uh, David makes the request of Nabal, you know, would, through these 10 men, would you offer some provision? Would you choose to bless us like we blessed you? And, and by the way, when you look at David's request, I'm sure that most of us would agree, if not all of us, that his request was perfectly reasonable. It was more of a request than a demand. The way that he sent these, these emissaries from his group, he was doing this to be very respectful. This wasn't done to be demanding. This wasn't done to be pushy. This wasn't done to be bossy. It was more of a request than a demand. And I also believe that Nabal could have said yes, and he could have said no, and he could have done so respectfully, and, the, and that would have been accepted if it was expressed respectfully. But instead of giving a respectful answer like we read just a few moments ago, Nabal demonstrated the depth of his foolishness. Again, his name meaning foolish. He demonstrates the depth of this. And he demonstrates the depth of his lack of gratitude. And by the way, one of the, that's one of the things that can be one of the most sour things about human beings. Just sometimes we go through life so blissfully unaware of the blessings we've received and so lacking in gratitude for the ways that the Lord has provided for us and cared for us that somehow we think we deserve these gifts and we deserve these blessings. And we don't even think of them as blessings. We just think of them as everyday occurrences that maybe everybody just enjoys this. Everybody gets these blessings, even when it's far from the case. And I believe that Nabal could have said yes. He could have said no. He could have done so and, you know, and, and been respectful in his answer, but instead of giving a respectful answer, he just demonstrates the depth of his foolishness, the depth of his lack of gratitude. And not only does he decline the request of these 10 men that David sends, but I don't know if you noticed this in his tone, you probably did, he chose to, he, he, like he made a point to mock and to insult David and his men. So what does that tell you about what Nabal thought of himself? Like he thought he was... A big deal. And the truth is, probably in that era, people treated him like a big deal. 
And they always tell you, so if any of you become super famous someday, all right, I would suspect maybe a third of us probably will, all right? They always say, don't believe your own press. Do you ever hear that, that colloquialism? Don't believe your own press. Well, Nabal was one of the guys that believed his own press. And he was the type of person who believed that he was a big deal because everybody treated him like that. And so he just puffed out his chest and he thought the world of himself. And he declines the request, but he does so in such a mocking manner to David and to these men. And in 1 Samuel 25, when you look at verses 10 and 11, you have, da- you have Nabal's answer to David. It says, And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? So, by the way, indicating, like, he knows who the guy is. He's just saying, who is he to me? Yeah, he might be a big deal to other people. Sure, he slays giants. Sure, there are some people that think he's got a great future up ahead. But who is he to me? Because I'm Nabal, the most foolish man in Israel, right? <laughs> who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He says, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. You know what he's implying there? He's like, you know, he should be back there with Saul. He should be back there hanging out with Saul. He should be, like, what's he doing? Breaking away from, from his master Saul. He's, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He says, shall I take my bread? So I'm putting a little emphasis on how I think he may have said it. I think he said it with, like, just arrogance, right? And, and looking at what he had as his own. And by the way, one of the most unhealthy things that we could do with anything that the Lord entrusts to us is look at it as mine, right? If you look at what the Lord's blessed you with and you say, it's mine, it's mine. If that's your attitude toward it, what you've done is you've now idolized the blessing. You're worshiping the blessing instead of the one who gave you the blessing. And so he's looking at these things and he's saying, shall I take my bread Really? My bread? By the way, when you look at, in the book of Acts, when you look at the early church, what did they, how did they treat what the Lord blessed them with? It tells us that if someone in, in the body had a need and they had the ability to meet it, they would work together to meet the needs. They're saying, thank you, Lord, for the blessings you've given us. It's a perilous time. Let's share it with one another. But that wasn't Nabal's mindset. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where, you know, or in our way of saying it, we'd be like, from who knows where, right? Like, who are these people? Why would I give that to you? Why would I do that for you? Forgetting the fact that the fact that none of this stuff was touched and the fact that it was protected for him was because this group of men had sacrificially served him. And when David was informed of this insult, now, I don't know, I don't know what gets you mad. Okay? I don't know what gets you mad. I could guess probably some of the common things get us all mad. Um, But I know what got David mad. (laughs) When you look at this portion of Scripture, it reveals to us when David was informed of this insult, he was incensed. And he's like, okay, this is Nabal's response. Gentlemen, we're about to wreak some havoc on Nabal's household. And so the Scripture tells us they strapped their swords to their waists, And they prepared to slaughter Nabal. They had every intention of doing this. And not only Nabal, but every man under his roof. They were going to wipe out his name. They were going to wipe out his lineage. They were going to wipe out his household from from within Israel. And, And 400 men, we're told here, 400 men. So you have a small army of men coming. Do you think Nabal had 400 people that were able to fight back? Certainly, I, I, I doubt it, right? You have 400 soldiers here, 400 men with 
with uh, swords strapped to their waist. They join David as they begin making their way toward Nabal's home. But as we work our way into 1 Samuel 25, they get providentially interrupted by Nabal's wife, Abigail. Now, before I read that portion to us, I just want something in the back of our minds before I read it. I have had plans throughout the course of my life that I thought were on track for this or on track for that. And the Lord has blessed me at multiple seasons of my life by providentially interrupting what my heart was set to do. And when I look back in retrospect, there's not a single instance that I could point to that I don't thank him for. And I want you to think about that as I read this portion here where it tells us about this providential interruption by Nabal's wife, Abigail, and recognize that that's a blessing that I, I, I guarantee that the Lord's done that for you as well. That he has providentially interrupted your plans because he has your greater good in mind. When you look at uh, 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 down to 28, I don't know if you could read that very well off the screen here, probably not, but it says this, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And by the way, just keep in mind, this is David and 400 angry men. And this woman, Abigail, comes before them and stops a small army. Put yourself in her shoes for a second. Slightly intimidating experience, am I right? But also in that moment, what do you have to lose? They're coming to wipe out your household. You really have one option. You might as well plead for some mercy here. And she says, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And she says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. By the way, that's how she's speaking of her husband. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Now again, if you know what his name means, foolish, you realize that this is like a backhanded you know, comment toward her husband. But anyway, she says, Nabal, it is, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you, from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live." Isn't that a beautiful thing? By the way, the other day, I was having a conversation with two young men who serve in leadership, and I expressed an observation that I first made when I was in my early 20s and regularly started attending board meetings. So those of you that uh, serve in various ministries or serve in different corporate contexts probably find yourself attending a variety of board meetings, and I actually happened to notice something just through the experience of being part of that a lot when I first became a pastor. And uh, as we were having this discussion, I actually wondered if, if the guys I was chatting with had ever made the same observation. And I asked them this. I said, have you ever noticed the difference that it makes on the tone of a meeting 
if there's at least one woman present in the room. So have you ever noticed that? And we were talking about that, and my, my thoughts on it are this. From, my, from what I see, a meeting tends to go better. Now, why is that? Why does a meeting tend to go better if you actually have the presence of at least one woman in a room? I don't know exactly why. But this is what I've noticed. The conversation tends to be better articulated, and the tones soften a little bit with just the presence of one woman in the context of a meeting. And I've noticed that. I've, I've noticed that many of the most productive meetings that I've been part of in the years that I've been serving as a pastor, you, you have a woman in the room present with you with the discussion, with many of those things, or multiple. I just, I'm just saying that in appreciation for how God has created humanity and how he has wired us in such a, um, such a, a blessed and complementary form. And that concept crossed my mind again when I was reading Abigail's actions in this passage. Because with great wisdom and with great prudence and with great humility, again, she was able to stop, she was able to stop an army of 400 angry men that were bent on killing her husband and destroying her household. She did that, right? And, and the scripture reveals that she blessed these men with the provisions that Nabal should have just gladly given them. So she comes with the provisions and her kind words, and she even looks at this whole thing. She wasn't there when, when the 10 men that David had sent spoke to Nabal. She didn't see this. She heard about it after the fact, but she also looked at this, and she offers, and you can see her own words. She says that basically she offers personally to bear the blame for the foolishness of her husband, Nabal. And then she also invited David to aim a little higher. You know, to think of the, the high calling that God had placed on his life. Because she basically was saying, listen, you're going in a direction here that's being fueled by anger, and this isn't as wise or as rational as I think you think it is. Think it through, David. Do you really want, do you really want innocent blood on your hands in this moment because you're angry with Nabal, who's basically just living up to his name? Here's the food. Here's the provisions he should have given you. Let your anger be directed toward me if it needs to be directed toward somebody. But relent. Don't make a foolish decision. Don't go in this direction. It's not going to pan out well. It's not a good look. It's not a good look for a future king, David. Again, have you ever been interrupted by your brothers and sisters in Christ who providentially prevent you from making rash or foolish decisions? You ever had a moment in time where the Lord providentially places someone in your life who has just the right thing to say and conveys just the right attitude that you're willing to actually listen to them because you respect them? And in the moment, they changed your plans, but in retrospect, you look back at it and say, boy, what a blessing that happened to be. I could point to many seasons in my life. One I was thinking about just the other day, I think I could have been severely physically hurt if not providentially interrupted. I remember during my freshman year of college, a few of my friends, we were, we were I think we were walking in a state park or, or, or some sort of you know, government-run park, and we came upon this area that had a, a decent-sized rock precipice that we were all admiring, and uh, each of us were kind of like, yeah, I could probably climb that. What about you? Yeah, no, I think I, I, could, I think I could do that. 
And we were kind of looking at it, and finally we're like, okay, and then I think we all felt like maybe we had to prove to each other that we could climb it. And so we started the process of climbing it. And uh, we didn't get very far when a jogger came up to us, and he said, hey, gentlemen, what, what do we got going on here? We're like, yeah, we're about to, about to climb this. And he's like, really? <laughs> and he's looking at it, and he's like, hmm. He's like, I don't, you don't have any safety equipment. You don't seem to have, like, you don't seem to have this really thought through. And uh, we're like, no, but we think we, you know, we're young, we're strong. We think we could probably get to the top of that. And he's like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe some of you could. And he said, can I give you my opinion? And we're like, yeah, sure, random jogger who came at just the right time. Uh, he said, my, uh, my opinion would be that maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't, but I, I, I strongly suspect that if, if you do this, one or more of you is going to end up hurt. And he's like, all right, I got to go finish my jog. See ya. And then he left. And then we kind of looked at each other and we're like, maybe we shouldn't do this. And then we, and we stopped. And I've often thought about that. I'm thinking, you know what? Like, the timing of that was a little too intentional because it wasn't like there were people around and all of a sudden this jogger comes right at the moment where we put our hands on the rock and begin the climb, but we didn't get that far. And he felt the need to actually care and say something where, I mean, think about how many times you've jogged right past people and you haven't bothered to say anything, even people you know well. I can think of many times in my own life where I just felt like, yeah, it's not my business. You ever do that? And you're like, it's not my business. And sometimes things aren't my business. And so I recognize not everything requires a comment. But if the Holy Spirit impresses upon your heart to comment, then it just became your business. And I think the Holy Spirit was guiding and directing the things that were taking place here. And you look at Abigail and she's saying, I, I, don't, I don't think you should do this. I don't think you should do this. This is not the approach you should take. I felt compelled to say something here. And when you look at verses 32 through 35, you see David's response. And there it says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. By the way, he's saying this with a group of 400 of the 600 that he's leading. If you're ever placed in a spot of leadership and the Holy Spirit speaks a word of correction to you, don't be so proud as to ignore that correction. It will not diminish your ability to lead. Everybody knows you're human, and everybody knows that sometimes you have ideas and they don't work out, and we all make mistakes, and we all have errors in judgment. And this was a moment that David, a lot, I've seen a lot of leaders, they won't change course because they're afraid that they're going to look foolish in the, in the midst of the group of people they're trying to lead. And so they go foolishly forward, even when the moment to make that, that, that spot of repentance has come. And here he says, blessed be your discretion. He, he basically repents of his decision. He says, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried... And come to meet me, truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. I've obeyed your voice, I've granted your petition. David praised the Lord for sending Abigail to intervene. 
He obeys her counsel here. He assured her there'd be no bloodshed that day. And afterward, the scripture reveals to us what happened next at her home. We're told that Abigail returned home to Nabal, and not surprisingly, when she got home, Nabal was very drunk. Scripture tells us he was blissfully unaware that he would have been exterminated had she not intervened. And the next morning, after he sobered up, after, the, as Scripture says, the wine had left him, she told him everything that took place. And upon hearing the news, it doesn't tell us which of these two it was, but it was probably one of these two based on his response. But after hearing the news from Abigail, he either had a heart attack or stroke. One of those things happened to him. And then within 10 days, he died. Now, it's interesting because when you look at verses 39 and 40 of 1 Samuel 25, it tells us that when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Now, let me pause there for a second. There are going to be a lot of times where you're going to be tempted to take vengeance You're going to be on the receiving end of an insult. You're going to be on the receiving end of something that was meant to demean you. And there's going to be a small part of you that thinks that you need to fight that battle for yourself. And I've seen it time and time again in my own life, but I've also seen it very illustrated very clearly here in Scripture and in other places. You don't have to return insult for insult. You can entrust the matter over to the Lord. The Lord makes the truth. The truth always comes out. In the end, the truth always comes out. And here you have Nabal receiving what David wanted to give to him, but Nabal receives it from the Lord and not from David. And David says, you know, ultimately, uh, the Lord has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. Now, it's interesting when you look at a portion of Scripture like this. I don't know all the details of what Abigail's marriage to Nabal happened to be like. I'm pretty confident it wasn't pleasant. Nabal certainly had not earned her respect. You could see that in the way she spoke of her husband. I think it's clear that Abigail thought he was a foolish man. I'm also certain she did not appreciate having to bail him out of trouble continually or having, in this case, her life and the life of those she cared about placed in danger because of Nabal's arrogance and because of Nabal's selfishness. And for a season of life, you could look at this and say, all right, she was married to Nabal. Or another way we could phrase that is she was stuck in the embrace of foolishness. But now that season had come to to an end, and she was becoming... The, soon-to-be, the bride of the soon-to-be king of Israel. Going from this embrace of foolishness to becoming the bride of the soon-to-be king of Israel. Now, some people look at their earthly lives, and it's kind of interesting to maybe even debate which category some of us fall in here. Some people look at their earthly lives and they think their best years occurred during the first half. Others feel like their best years came during the second half of life. I'm guessing that's how, how Abigail probably felt. She went from union with foolishness to becoming the bride of a king. When you look at Abigail's story, I actually hope each of us can see a glimpse of our story and her example, because before we knew Jesus, we too were united with foolishness. 
Before knowing Christ, you were in union with foolishness. I'll show you how Scripture describes it in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, For although they knew God, meaning that they know He exists, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Who's that speaking of? Humanity apart from Christ, which at one point was me, and at one point was you. And maybe for some of us, at at this point, it might still be you, depending on where you are with Jesus. You're either embracing foolishness or you're embracing the king. It's one or the other. And when you look at Jesus, he looked at us with compassion. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for is the fact that he wasn't content to allow us to remain caught in the embrace of foolishness. He directly intervened. He forgave our insults. He forgave our offenses and took us to be his bride. Doesn't that amaze you? That amazes me that Jesus would look at us at our worst spot. It wasn't like we had anything to offer him. He looked at me as I'm embracing foolishness, and he says, I want you to be united to me. Scripture reveals to us that everyone now who trusts in Jesus Christ, everyone who entrusts their life over to him, becomes united to him forever in a spiritual marriage that cannot be severed. There's a scripture reference that my wife and I have engraved on the inside of our wedding bands. I have eaten too much of her good cooking to still get this off, so you're going to have to accept this by faith that it's actually in there. It doesn't come off anymore. But there's a scripture reference we both have engraved on the inside of our wedding bands, and it's this. In Ephesians 5, it tells us about marriage, ultimately, from Christ's eyes, and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Not a beautiful picture of how Jesus Christ sees the church that he has married himself to, that he is united to through this marriage. The other day, a friend of mine shared this statement on her social media. She said, you are not the sum of your mistakes. Do you ever hear that phrase? You are not the sum of your mistakes. Aren't you glad that's true? I used to think it was my goal to make it through life mistake-free, and uh, I've since lived long enough to know that that is not possible for me. And maybe you've lived long enough to know that that is not possible for you either. And isn't it wonderful to know that when Jesus looks at those who trust him, he isn't seeing us for our mistakes. Ephesians 5 tells us how he's seeing us, right? He sees the church as his bride, holy spotless, without blemish, no longer bound to foolishness, but free, not abandoned or in peril, but united to him, the king of kings. I'm going to ask a favor of you, and I hope that you'll take me up on this. Please do yourself this favor today. Don't burden your heart with the weight of the mistakes or the foolishness that you were once bound to. Jesus has set you free. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he has set you free. 
And he sees you differently now. The scripture tells us exactly how he sees you. If you're his bride, if you're married to him, if you're part of the church, he sees you as holy, spotless, without blemish. He's not ashamed to call you his own. He's not ashamed to give you his name. And I think we need to get ready for the second half of life to be immeasurably better than the first half happened to be. One of the blessings of following Jesus Christ, he promises us eternal life. It's an eternal life that cannot be snatched away from us. And Many people think of their eternal life as something beginning sometime in the future. And the truth is, if you know Jesus Christ right now, your eternal life has already begun. Because even though your physical body is going to wear out, Scripture tells us you, you yourself, your essence, you will not truly die. And you'll be blessed with a brand new body in His presence, incorruptible, united to Him forever, enjoying the blessings of eternity in a kingdom that you were invited to be part of. You were invited to be part of it. Meaning God specifically wanted you to be part of it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You know, I look at this whole testimony and this whole thing that Abigail went through, years of being united to someone who just seemed to be foolishness personified during their generation. She goes from being married to foolishness, united to foolishness, to being married to the king. And that is an exact picture of what Jesus has done for you and for me. I was united to foolishness, and now he's united me to him. And he's done that for you. Or if it yet, at, at this point, if you have not received that, he offers it to you to receive. And the fact that you're in my hearing right now as we look at the scriptures together means that God in his sovereignty, where there are no accidents, where everything's on purpose, your ears were meant to hear that message. And he invites you to embrace him. With arms wide open to you, inviting you to experience the blessing of eternity in his presence, giving up the old life and experiencing the blessing of the new life. And as he offers you that invitation to trust him and walk with him forever, I hope you'll take him up on it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this that in some ways we look at it and we think, oh, that's an interesting historical example. I'm sure that there are some people that look at this and are like, boy, David got mad. Good thing he relented. And maybe they think that that's the, the main point of everything we just read. But Lord, you show us that there's a deeper connection, a deeper meaning to what you illustrate in your word. This isn't just a portion of scripture about anger or about retribution. You use historical examples like this to demonstrate for us very, very deep spiritual realities. And Lord, it is so true that each of us have spent time, we've spent that season, maybe a long season, united to the foolishness of this world. And it looked so appealing to us, and we thought it was so wonderful, and we thought that somehow it was going to bring satisfaction to our hearts. And then it didn't. All it did was embarrass us and put us in danger. And the ultimate danger being a, a, an eternity separated from you, an eternity under our, the weight of our own condemnation and the weight of your condemnation. And instead of us experiencing that kind of eternity, you looked at us and offered us the alternative. 
union with you. Father, we know that that was accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and took the scorn and the insults and all the things that we deserved. He took it upon himself, just like Abigail came to David and said, look, I'll, I'll bear the, the weight of everything Nabal did. I'll, I'll bear it all. Just what, whatever he deserves, if you, you could dish it out to me, just show mercy to everybody else. And Father, that's exactly what your Son, Jesus Christ, did on, on our behalf willingly came, took the scorn, took the pain, took the blame that really should have been dished out toward us. But Father, we're so grateful for the fact that He did that because we know that now through Your Son, Jesus Christ, who shed His blood on the cross to atone for our sin and who rose from the grave on the third day, defeating death, that we can have new life as we trust in Him. So Father, I pray that for each and every one of us gathered together, that that would be something that we recognize as a blessing that you offer to us. And that it wouldn't be something that we look at and think that it's a trivial thing. It's the biggest deal ever. And Father, I pray that you'd speak to the hearts and speak to the minds of every one of us gathered here. If that's a gift we've received, we pray that today would be a day that we're reminded to just express our gratefulness for it. Not take it for granted, but just simply say thank you. And if that's a gift that as of this point maybe was never explained to us before, wasn't something that our mind grasped the last time we heard about it, but today it's starting to make sense, I pray, Lord, that you'd work in the hearts of my, and minds of those who maybe feel like up to this point they've lived their life kind of knowing about you, but not really having a very close relationship with you. I pray that today would be that line in the sand kind of day where they come to know you and enjoy the blessings and benefits of being part of your kingdom forever. The protection that you offer, the guidance and wisdom, the hope beyond this world. Thank you, Father, for offering that to us. We pray that we would accept that offer that you offer to us and, and that we would look at it and we would say just thank you so much for what you've accomplished on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful for the fact that we could begin our week together with that kind of reminder. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.